Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I promise I'm preaching from the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, but I ask your forgiveness in advance if this first example comes from the gospel of Ted Lasso, a popular television series that just ended its third season. The stories of these these characters provide these sto- the, the, the stories these characters provide offer such a compelling picture of grace and mercy that I cannot help myself. In the final season, we witnessed the awakening of a character whom the head coach had elevated from water boy to assistant coach. It was a real narrative of hope and promise and a dream coming true. But the attention all went to his head and he made an epic betrayal of those who were closest to him, followed by a greedy and selfish abandonment of coach and the beloved team for a seemingly better coaching job. Eventually, he begins to realize the error of his ways. He resigns from his fancy job and seemingly walks away from soccer altogether. The team and the coach are surprisingly open to welcoming him back into their fold. But the assistant coach, Beard, will not hear of it. He has airtight arguments as to why he cannot be trusted and why they should not entertain the possibility of forgiveness. Beard is a compelling paradigm of righteous indignation. Ever so gently, Coach issues Beard a challenge. I hope that either all of us or none of us are judged by the actions of our weakest moments, but rather by the strength we show when and if we are ever given a second chance. Assistant Coach Beard shows up on the doorstep of the character in question that very same evening. By way of explanation, he shares his own journey. Coach and I met playing college football. We were backup players and never got on the field during a game. But we spent a lot of time together jogging and doing box jumps. After school, we went our separate ways. He got into coaching and I got into prison. When I got paroled, I had no money. My family did not want me and I had nowhere to go. So I looked up coach. He took me in, fed me, and let me crash on his couch. In return, I stole his car. I would have gone straight back to prison if coach didn't go down there and convince those cops that he gave me his car. I stole from my friend who forgave me, and then he gave me a job and my life. To honor that, I forgive you, and I offer you a job. The life part is up to you. Beard had no desire to forgive the person whom he'd spent years utterly hating. In his mind, it was incredibly clear why he was not worthy of a single ounce of mercy, much less grace. It wasn't until Coach reminded Beard of his own need for mercy and a large dose of grace that he was able to see that he was the problem, not the person who had supposedly committed the wrongs. Or someone more articulate said, our capacity and desire to forgive is not, nearly as our, is not nearly as seductive as our desire to judge. Our capacity and desire to forgive is not nearly as seductive as our desire to judge. Coach held up a mirror for Beard to see that he was the only thing standing in the way of grace. 
this portion of the narrative from the show Ted Lasso does the same thing as the gospel this morning. Both hold up a mirror and help us to see the seductive power of self-righteousness. In this morning's lessons, it is the Pharisees for whom Jesus holds up a mirror. They are the moral police of sorts throughout the gospel narratives. They're the original critics in the bleachers or anonymous social media commenters pointing out who has stepped out of bounds, when, and what catty nicknames we might assign them as a result. They are an original incarnation of cancel culture, eager to name who should be avoided and at all costs. Those supposedly committed to piety, they can't get out of their own way. Jesus is very clear about pointing out the ways in which they've lost connection to the why behind their what. They spend so much time focused on how other people are doing things wrong, they lose touch with the very purpose of their original commitment. The secular gospel of salvation, the narrative which claims that we'll be saved if only we weed out and stay away from the influence of those people. That narrative is as old as time. Jesus was dealing with the exact same issues. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Jesus says. Here's the thing we need to reckon with. This is never how Jesus behaves. So it makes me wonder if Jesus has an entirely different understanding of the construct of purity. Every time it seems the Gospels have a grip on what the new community of followers might look like, Jesus draws the circle wider. Every time the disciples try and put constraints on who it is they're supposed to be ministering to, Jesus takes them further into the country the country, y'all, further and further into the country every time. This morning's gospel offers three examples of individuals with whom it would have been not only scandalous, but potentially dangerous for Jesus to associate. The woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years would have been considered contagious. Furthermore, there were exceedingly detailed purity laws that Jesus would have violated by being in contact with a female. But here's the truth about what happens in this exchange. Jesus's mercy is more infectious than whatever has marked her as unclean. Jesus's mercy is more infectious than whatever has marked her as unclean. Likewise, Jesus traveled to the home of the leader of the synagogue to find that his daughter had just died. Much like the unclean woman, there were purity laws that forbade an unknown man from touching the corpse of a young girl. Never mind the obvious reality that her family and friends were already mourning her loss. But Jesus is not phased by the potential for infection. Even in the face of death, Jesus makes it clear that mercy is more infectious than any powers that have a grip on us in this life or the next. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus could not be more clear. Grace and mercy are meant not just for us, however we want to categorize ourselves, but for all. Imagine with me, if you will, a man who worked incredibly hard to care for his family. He learned the mechanics of mathematics from his father and naturally followed in his footsteps when the time came. 
At first, he enjoyed being a tax collector as there was some predictability to the method of his collections. It was the people who wore him down. The excuses were never ending. The histrionics of their pleas and the greed of those who had so much was insufferable. Before long, he fell in with the most senior tax collector stealing that stealing from that which he had collected at the end of every day. He was never proud of his actions, but it became second nature. I imagine Matthew's story might have gone something like that. The very same Matthew who was a tax collector and became Jesus's 12th disciple. I imagine Matthew was surprised to be on the receiving end of Jesus's invitation. And I imagine Matthew was surprised to sit around that table on his first night with Jesus and find himself in the company of his equally untrustworthy colleagues. Matthew spends the next several years following Jesus and witnessing the power of mercy. Matthew then spends the rest of his life penning the gospel, which you and I have in our hands this morning, doing his best to share the essence of his experience, which was marked by irrational mercy. We know so little about Jesus' disciple Matthew, and I think that's probably exactly what he intended. Truthfully, this single story is all we really need. Once you have experienced and internalized the love that God has for you, that is the whole story. And then you spend the rest of your life desperate to share that story with whomever you can. Matthew had that experience with Jesus. I'm sure he was a part of any number of encounters that we have of disciples tripping over themselves, unintentionally losing focus along the way, and missing Jesus's point altogether. But the way in which he captured the life and ministry of Jesus in his gospel makes it clear that eventually he understood. Jesus loved him unconditionally. The simplicity and wholeness of that reality defied imagination. And so Matthew brings us story after story that violates everything we may find to be sensible and rational. At the end of our days, the story is never about how truly dreadful those other people really were. The story is always about how wrong we were to sit in the seat of judgment. The shocking part of this story is not that the mercy of Jesus is more infectious than all our constructs of purity combined. The shocking part of this story is that every time we look up to see who Jesus is sitting with, we're surprised to realize it's not us. Amen.